Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., we're coming up on 2018. I know. That's insane. It is. It's that time of year where you write the wrong date on things for about 30 days. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, My case, three months. (laughs) And then then months later, you're still going, what? You got your fingers out? Thank goodness I don't use checks anymore, because that really is where it went bad. Goals. What are your goals for 2018? My goals. It's that time Um, of year where you start thinking of what's next year. Most of my goals really actually involve story brand. I'm really excited about some of the things we have going on next year. And, and that's not and, an ad because we no, try, no. I tried to get you to do something. Yeah, ahead of time, you're like, what are your goals next year? And I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I've kind of like a lot of my personal goals I've actually really achieved this year. And the thing that I'm most excited about next year is some of the stuff. Well, it is personal because I'm moving into a new role. Like right. I move, so, JJ is now chief of staff. Yeah. We've already announced that, but so but that's really kicking off in January. So I'm right now. That's what I'm thinking about is just all the things that are going to be happening next year and going and moving. And we got a lot. We're our yeah. goal is a hundred percent increase revenue yeah. year. Over so year. there's some fun things we're already getting putting in place. So that really is like for my goals in 2018. Really, are you a goal? Like I start thinking about goals for the next year in late November. Really, mid-November, I'm already going. You're going, setting them up. Get, yeah, I like it. No, I'm not, actually. Really? You're, you don't think in that way? No. I, I think have to. I do a lot of short-term goals. When I think of something, I want it done now. If I can't think, like I usually have the goal that I'm working on, yeah. and then the goal after that. Yeah. If I have a goal that I'm working on, you know, I think in terms of books. So if yeah. I have a book I've got to finish, and then there I have a book after that. Yeah. If I don't have a book after that, I find myself not getting depressed, but just like wondering what the meaning of life is. Really? <laughs> so not depressed, but just contemplating my existence. It's true. Yeah. It's like I, I learned a long time ago to stop thinking so much and just kind of live existentially. Uh, we've all experienced that with you. <laughs> but you know, just like live yeah. existentially. It's yeah. like you just have to experience meaning in the moment. You don't yeah. have to answer the big questions of yeah. why we're here. And yeah, it sounds like terrible advice, not to, but, but it works. Yeah. It's, very, it's very Victor Frankl logotherapy. Yeah. I lost 20 pounds yeah, in 2017. Did. Yeah, you did. 10 pounds of fat and 10 pounds of muscle. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> as weak as I've ever been because <laughs> I joined a gym and I'm uh-huh. like, oh, we didn't just lose fat. We yeah. can't lift anything. Yeah. You know how heavy those water bottles are yeah, these those days? five pound <laughs> weights are. Yeah. <laughs> weights? I haven't yeah. even gotten there. I'm still lifting the towel, but I'm getting muscle. I, get, yeah. I joined a gym. I'm swimming. I know. Every morning. Uh, that you can. Yeah, like every three months, but <laughs> yeah. it's December. Well, here's, so you mentioned that. So even like, that's one of the things when you asked me like, what are your goals for 2018? I was like, get in shape. Eh, not really. <laughs> um, Tim and I just went to a conference and they had us like, this is business conference that they had you evaluate like the importance of various areas of your life. So there's like intellectual, spiritual, relational, physical, like where do those rank one to 10 on importance for you? And so I ranked physical as a five. I'm like, it's not that important to me. I don't really Really? care. Yeah, I ranked it as five. But you are athletic in many ways. You don't, see, like I'm at that point at 46 where like my knees hurt a little bit. Yeah. If I eat sugar at night, I don't feel good in the morning. My body is starting to say, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah, so is mine, but I don't actually care. And that's the thing. Really? So, yeah, it's like where – so I ranked it as a five on importance, and then they said um, rank it on one to ten on how well you're doing on that. And I was like, at a five, I'm crushing it. <laughs> like, I'm like – and so I'm like, I am killing it. I'm, I'm scoring a ten. One hundred percent. hundred percent on a five. But then it was like, if you know, from your Commitment relational pers- – desire. Yeah, so it was like on a relational, I might have ranked that as a ten, and I'm like, I'm doing a nine on that. But at a level five physical, mm. I am killing it. This might be our most inspirational episode <laughs> I think ever. so. We're getting ready to, to like actually go into some pretty amazing things, and we just kind of like, oh yeah, I don't want to. I'm gaining weight, and no, I'm doing it. I, I, I mean, I've got to get this done. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There's another book I'm going to write in 2018, and already thinking about some exciting things. I'm feeling at 46 now. I do, you know, Tim will tell you. Anybody who knows me for a long time knows that I tend to be out sometimes 30 and 40 years in terms of where I'm thinking I want to be. Yeah. And when you're 46 and you're out 40 years, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You're, you're, That's you're why you're 80, swimming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, oh, you got to condense time <laughs> in order to get some yeah. of the things done that you want to get done. It's time to start thinking about that stuff. And today's guest is a gift in that department oh, because if there's a theme yeah. to today's episode, it's dream big. Yeah. In fact, it would be 
Dream for the stars. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> dream. Literally shoot. dream for the stars. This episode could be called Shoot for the Moon. Yeah, shoot for the shoot for Mars. Shoot for Mars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, this week I interviewed astronaut Jerry Lininger. Yes, an actual astronaut. Like been in space. Yeah. But not been in space like on one mission, shot yeah. slingshot around the moon. No. Been in space for five months on the Russian <laughs> yes. space station. Not even the International Space Station. No. That's luxury. Yes. This guy was in a coffee can satelliting oh the gosh. Earth. gosh. When I heard that we got him on the podcast, I was completely geeking out. Yeah. We're going to have an astronaut on our <laughs> podcast. You're going to hear it in here. A fire breaks out, biggest fire ever in space. <laughs> he can't get to his escape capsule. Yeah. He has to put out the fire. Uh, a machine gets broken and makes it 90 degrees for over a month inside the space station. (laughs) The space station essentially has a junkyard in it that they never bring anything back. They bring things up and never bring it back because there might be a screw or something in the junk pile that That they actually use. It is nothing like the movies. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing. It's Sanford and Son in space. (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. But the other thing is he manages to weave in some great business advice. I know everybody's going rolling their eyes like, just talk about space. You don't always have to bring in. But he does. He talks about... You know, being calm under pressure. Yep. He talks about choosing the people that you work with very carefully. Mm -hmm. This is the part that after the interview was the hardest for me to grapple with. He talks about understanding and knowing deeply what you're willing to die for. Yeah. And how calm it makes you when you realize, no, it doesn't matter if I die. I'm willing to die for this. Yeah. And that to me was like, wow. That's really something to reflect. Because if you think about it, if you really were like, I don't, I, you know, think about just die metaphorically, be embarrassed in front of a group, yeah. fail big, yeah. those kinds of things. If you want something that badly, right, and you're willing to, quote, fail big or be yeah. embarrassed, all the fear goes away. Then when the moment comes, you're just in it. Because it's like, yeah, I actually could die for this, and I chose to do it. Yeah, I'm willing. willing to. I'm willing. Yeah. This is worth it. Yeah. Huge sacrifice. I mean, you'll feel the tension kind of in our conversation when we get into how much he has to leave his family, how, yeah. you know, all these kinds of things. That, yeah, this guy's sold out. And, yeah. and he's a great dad. He's a great, you know, he's a family man, but just willing to do crazy things in yeah. order to live his dream. Anyway, dream big, shoot for the moon, shoot for the stars. <laughs> That's our gift to you going into 2018 and closing out the year. I don't want to wait any longer. I want you to hear my conversation with astronaut Jerry Lininger. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Good to be on the planet with you. (laughs) Well, as far as I know, I think you are the only person I've ever talked to. I'm trying to rack my brain. I've been near a moon rock once at the state capitol in Texas. That's the closest I've ever been to anything that's been in space. And you're the first person I've ever talked to who's been in space, which is strange because I grew up in Houston. You know, we have a problem, right? And they hate that when you say that now. But uh, yeah, yeah, moon rocks are cool, though. There's something about, you know, knowing you're touching something that not too many people in the world have touched. Same thing with going to space. It's just pure privilege. I consider it, first of all, representing my United States Navy and Marine Corps, you know, my organization. But I also says, hey, I'm representing the United States here. I'm going to give it my best. And then I also broaden that to say, you know, reality is I'm representing the world. I'm representing mankind up here. And that's quite a load to have on your back, a bit of responsibility. And, you know, you take it very seriously and you try to represent mankind well. How old were you? I mean, you must have been a child or even younger, just a baby, when Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon. Do you have any memory of that? Oh, I have a memory of that. You hear it so many times as an astronaut, you know, we choose to go to the moon. You know, <laughs> Because these things statement. are hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And, you know, the main thing that he said, we're going to do it in this decade. We're going to do it in the next 10 years. You know, not many business leaders or anyone else sets those type of time restrictions on things. So it's really easy to say we're going to do something hard. It's very hard to say we're going to do something hard and we're going to get it done during this time frame and to set that time frame. Are you pointing that out because you are a systems guy and that is an important part of creating dynamic systems that work? Absolutely. I've actually got a master's in systems management. So and I did that just on my own night school, University of Southern Cal because I like critical path analysis. I like to know where the weak spots are. I like to know what's going to slow me down and what's going to slow the goals that I have or the goals that my organizations have, United States Navy or NASA. You know, you got to methodically work through those things. And time limits are important. Deadlines are important. 
Absolutely. And it also, you know, gets you working a little harder. You realize you can't just twiddle your thumbs too much. Got to make progress every day or you're never going to get to that goal. Well, I want to go back to Kennedy's statement. At what point did you stare up into space and say, I want to go there? Was that when you were young or was that in the Navy when you realized there might be an opportunity? Yeah, Don, I was about 14 years old looking up at the moon. Wow. And uh, I said, man, I want to do that someday. Our guys are up there. So it was the moon landings is probably the memory that I made up my mind right there and then I'm going to be an astronaut someday. And I went home, a blue collar neighborhood, Detroit. Dad drove a telephone truck, five kids in the family, said, Dad, I want to be an astronaut. He said, Jerry, you work hard, you study hard. This is America. Good World War II guy understood that America could do whatever we set our minds to. You know, he said, that's what you're going to do someday. And so that was my path. That was my flight path, if you will. 14 years old, and I started sort of structuring my life so that it could become potentially a success and be able to actually become an astronaut. How important was your dad's belief in your vision and your dream? I would imagine it's the combination of having this incredible authority figure saying you can do it and being impressionable enough at 14 to believe it that sort of set that in your brain of, hey, I'm just going to keep taking the next step. I mean, it's impossible to know at 14 how unbelievably statistically difficult <laughs> it's going to be. At, I mean, it's like hitting a half-court shot 700 times in a row, the, but you the did it. The last astronaut selection, I think there were 35,000 qualified people. Now, there's a bunch that want to do it and, and look at the uh, <laughs> application and say, you know, I don't have a chance. But, you know, 35,000 for about 10 spots. And so, you know, I realized on early, you recognize that your odds are very small. But you just keep chipping away at it and you try to build up your resume and you try to do things that might put you at an advantage along the way. And so I went to the U.S. Naval Academy, for example, because more astronauts graduated from the Naval Academy than any other school. Really? I mean, even those choices, you were looking for the statistical probability that gave you the greatest chance of getting Absolutely. Space. Master's at night. You know, I mentioned that. You try to get a master's degree, try to get another master's degree. I go on, get my MD. I go on, get a PhD. I fly jets. I do all the things that I think might help me. Scuba diving, you know, even fun things. But scuba diving is kind of analogous to doing a spacewalk. If you're a calm diver, you probably have a good potential to be a good spacewalker. And so you just keep ticking those things off and you keep your fingers crossed and you just keep applying and trying and trying and trying. And then I'll tell you, Don, when I finally got it, the reality is there's probably 15 seats behind me. I got the chair but there's probably 15 people that are equally qualified. And I mean that honestly, you know, flip a coin between us all. So at the end, you know, you got to have a little bit of luck, but all that preparation got me at least in those 15 chairs when they flipped the coin, I had a chance at it. You were in the place where you had the best percentage of getting lucky, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's a little bit of timing and everything else. Even the astronaut corps, you're looking for certain skill sets in certain selection groups. You know, I had the right skill set at the right time. So, you know, again, there's luck involved, but yes, you do make your own luck to some degree. We could get into the physical training and everything you had to learn. I'm more curious about something that you alluded to, you know, when you were talking about scuba diving, staying calm while you're down there. What are some of the things you had to learn just mentally in order? I mean, I would imagine you put me in a coffee can and shoot me into space. I'm going to freak out. I don't know. You know. Yeah, they screen you for a few things like that. They stick you in a little ball. <laughs> they screen you. <laughs> they zip you into it. They close this thing. It's pitch black inside there. They've got heart monitors on you. And then you're sitting in there thinking, you know, he didn't tell me how long he's going to keep me in this thing now that I think about it. <laughs> you didn't ask? Yeah, no. I kind of closed my eyes. I sort of <laughs> fell asleep because I was tired from all the other, you know, testing they had done on me. Eventually they come back, open it up, and, you know, they determine you're not claustrophobic. So they methodically- How long was eventually? I'm curious. It was probably, I sort of fell asleep, but my guess is <laughs> 10 minutes or so, uh, 10 minutes oh. inside this ball. <laughs> but if you're claustrophobic, you're out. You know, They've got plenty of applicants and they are looking for reasons to eliminate people, really. Back to your question, I think it's all the life experiences you have. You fly off the back of an aircraft carrier on a stormy night, you find out what you're made out of in those situations. I'm a physician. You got a triple gunshot wound victim coming into Detroit receiving hospital. And I take my own pulse first and I say, Jerry, you better stay calm, use your brain, methodically work through this. Or you're going to lose this guy's life. 
So it's not just, you know, one moment where you mentally all of a sudden click your fingers and you're ready to be an astronaut and ready to, you know, sit on top of 7 million pounds of thrust. It's all the things before that, that kind of prepared you for that moment. And I'll tell you, and I'm not trying to sound stoic or brave or anything else, but when I'm sitting on that rocket, I am as calm as can be. I've trained hard. I've given it everything I could to prepare. I trust my teammates. And I guess the other thing is I tell myself this is worth my life. And I made that determination before I climbed into that rocket that what I'm about to do, moving mankind forward, is worth my life. It's worth sacrificing for. I was going to ask about, I mean, ultimately, I uh, took a couple flight lessons uh, last year. And at one point, I'm landing this plane and the pilot next to me just says, okay, you need to head toward the Nashville airport. And I couldn't figure out where the airport was. And then there were a couple birds that we were about to hit. And, you know, the thing that keeps going through my brain is I could die. Uh huh. Were it not for the I can die part, I think I would have done just fine. But when you start thinking about the worst case scenario, did you have to train your brain out of thinking about the worst case scenario? Or was it just experience where the worst case scenario doesn't happen over and over that you kind of get used to it? Or are you just not wired to go worst case scenario? Or like you said, is the answer, no, Don, I was willing to die. I mean, I just made my peace with that. And that took the fear away. How did you get the worst case scenario fear out of your brain? You make that decision. I think every astronaut does. Walking out to that pad, you decide this is worth my life or else you don't walk out there. You know, and there is a business part to this. It reminds me of, you know, flying off an aircraft carrier at night. I had a friend of mine ran a frozen foods business and they were making a big decision and it could sink the business and not exactly sure whether they should do it or not. And everyone's sitting around biting their fingernails. And this old naval aviator friend of mine stands up and says, he's the CEO of the company. Says, you know, guys, this is not the back end of an aircraft carrier on a stormy night. And he looked at the one guy, George, you're a smart guy. No matter what happens, you're going to be just fine in life. And looks around the room and everybody's in the same boat. They're all competent people. And he said, let's, you know, use our brains. Let's think this through, but we shouldn't be biting our fingernails. This is not life and death. And so that's a calculus I have in my mind with anything I approach, you know, Will this kill me is the end result. If it will kill me, I look into those, and NASA is really a risk reduction machine. We look at all those things that can kill you. We identify them. We train. We try to do everything possible, build triply redundant systems, for example. We do everything possible to minimize those risks. And when you've done that, and when there's nothing else you can control, that's when you get the peace of mind to say, okay, I'm ready to go do this. That's amazing. That teaches us a lot right there. I wonder, will you walk us through from the launch pad to space? I mean, you talk about this in your TED Talk, and it's so fascinating. Will you walk us through what you're doing and what all's going on in your body and what all you have to be thinking about and how they get you out there? Yeah, first of all, Don, I'll tell you, it's a beast. That space shuttle, when I got at the base of it and looked up, I said, this thing is a monster. It's huge. It's going to take me from zero to Mach 25 you know, 25 times the speed of sound in about seven and a half minutes. Uh, You lie on your back about two minutes, uh, checking your oxygen flows, everything else, close and lock visor, initiate oxygen flow. Then you hear that countdown, you know, 10, nine. So two minutes before they start the countdown is when you're You're locked locked in. in. You're actually locked in for a couple hours, but the last two minutes, you're finally, you know, they say it looks like everything's go for the launch. And so now you really are focused in those last two minutes. Gotcha. Then things start coming alive. Liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen flowing to the three main engines. They start gimbling. The whole stack starts swaying. How violent is that shake at the very beginning? I mean, when they start, when the fire- It is a low- bass drum that just goes right through your whole body. And it is a, um, it's power. It's power like I've never felt. I've been in F-14s going afterburner, but it's a different kind of power. This thing is a beast, kind of lurches up. Very wild the first two minutes. You've got the two big solid rocket boosters and you are just about out of control. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're in control. Did you wonder, okay, are we spinning here? Are we going straight up? Are we... Did that ever cross your mind or you were prepared? You knew what this thing was going to feel like. You kind of hear the stories, but there's no way to prepare for something like that. You are being thrown around, you know, violent, chaotic. You go from one edge of the envelope and then guidance just yanks you back. Control yanks you back in the other direction. And it is just wild and violent being thrown around. Can't barely see the switches in front of you. 
And then two minutes later, there's boom, boom, big explosion and the solid rocket boosters explode off. And now the ride goes to pure acceleration and very smooth. It's like a dragster thrown back in your seat. You're already moving at unbelievable speed, and then it starts to accelerate quicker? Yes. And so what's happening is you drop the weights off, if you will, the spent solid rocket boosters. As you burn through the fuel, you get lighter. As you go higher, you're hitting less atmosphere. Resistance. So yeah. yeah, so the speed just keeps picking up, picking up, picking up. And then you're really getting pushed down in your seat last two and a half minutes or so, feeling about two and a half G's. And then the engine's cut off. The feeling of two bodies pushing down you, and it kind of goes away. Your own body weight kind of goes away. And it is, uh, you know, 3G crush. And then you release float overhead window. And you're looking down at planet Earth floating. You know, it's just an incredible, uh, you know, the contrast one second to the next is just remarkable. How many minutes from them lighting the match to your floating? About seven and a half minutes. And it's a wild Ooh. seven and a half minutes. And every split second is uh, pretty much imprinted in my brain. Are you having to do breathing exercises the whole way up? Or? You're doing a bit of grunting, but you're okay. The G-force is actually coming in the direction from the front of your chest to the back of your chest. And so it's not so much of a problem like you'd have in a high-performance aircraft where you're getting the G pulling the blood out of your brain. And so you're kind of being pushed into your seat. You're feeling the weight more than you're feeling lightheaded. How many missions have you done total? And then I want to back up a little bit and walk through some. So I was on three shuttle missions. And then my claim to fame, I went, studied in Russia for a couple of years. And I went on a Russian space station for about five and a half months. Myself, two Russian cosmonauts. They spoke no English. Broken down communication system of the year. So we were basically up there, isolated, cut off like I've never been. You know, you learn a lot about yourself, a lot about human nature when you're in that type of isolation. Did you know enough Russian to get along up there? Or was there some sort of translation system? How did you? Yeah, no that? translation system. I actually went to Russia for about two years prior to the flight. I had to learn all the systems. And I think if you were God looking down on us, you would not know who the American was. We were a team of three cosmonauts. I spoke Russian the whole time, got pretty competent at it. Only talked to Mission Control Moscow for those five months through the static when we could talk to them. And so I was basically learning what it's like to be a cosmonaut, to be a Russian up in space. Did they ask you to hack Hillary Clinton's emails? <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to catch you. <laughs> they shot you up in a rocket, right? Or did they have their own space shuttle knockoff? Actually, I went up in the space shuttle and my two crewmates went up in a Soyuz capsule. And so gotcha. the Russians would take their own people up in their own spacecraft we would take the American up and bring the American down in the space shuttle. I'm curious, when you first saw the space station, you know, the shuttles coming in to approach it, and you know, this is where I'm going to be for a period of time. Home sweet home. Really? I mean, it was-, was Well, it you a have, you know, first of all, it's a beautiful, the International Space Station, the newest one we have out there, you know, it's a beast. It's like a couple football fields. I mean, it's fantastic. You look, wow, we built this thing. But you had that same moment approaching the Russian space station, like what mankind can do, pretty incredible. Big solar panels sticking out, modules in all directions, five or six of them. But when you docked and opened that hatch and went inside, I would told a bit of a different story. That space station was close to 13 years old, parts of it, design life of three to five years. And so it kind of smelled like going into grandma's basement. It was sort of mildewy, moldy <laughs> yeah, yeah. stuff pushed to the side all over the place, not neat and clean like the space shuttle. And you say, okay, this is going to be uh, quite an adventure living on this thing for five months. Wow. I mean, I have a ton of questions just about how you live with a couple other guys for that period of time without anything ever getting heated or tensions erupting or, you know, those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, I, I can answer this like you do in any business or anything else. You put that common goal out there that people believe in and you're united in accomplishing that goal. And we had no, you know, arguments to speak of in five months. I think they thought in the same terms I did. You know, we're up here colonizing space for mankind, moving mankind forward, and we're going to put all the petty differences aside and get along like human beings can get along. So what are the systems that remind you of the common goals? I mean, did you guys 
you know, have to wake up every day and talk about the day's objectives and talk about the overall objective and where today's objective fits in the overall objective. I mean, are there, you know, we use a system in our office called Four Disciplines of Execution. And really the, the simplicity of the system is to consistently remind everybody what the story is, why the story matters, and what's your role in the story. Did those sort of things exist in your workload there? Yeah, it did. We had more or less checklists. So every day on the space shuttle, for example, it's down to the minute. You know every minute of time in orbit what you're going to be doing, including you know toilet breaks and things like that. So everything is timed to the minute because time and space is precious. On the mirror, it was more a set of tasks that had to be accomplished. And at the end of the day, I'd you know, float up to the ceiling and a piece of Velcro there had a checklist and I'd put the checks in the box, float over the wall, put some Velcro around me, close my eyes, and I would sleep well because of that sense of accomplishment. Were you tired when you went to sleep? And is it a mental exhaustion or are you also physically exhausted? Probably more mental exhaustion, um, but you are tired. We had, for example, 120 experiments we're trying to accomplish up there. We had failures of life support systems, failures of the carbon dioxide scrubbers, failure of the oxygen generating system, you know, CO2 building up. We couldn't get rid of the heat, so we're about 90 degrees plus for months on end. We had a lot of breakdowns of systems. We were working really day and night to try to keep that space station alive and to try to accomplish the mission goals that we had set for ourselves. All right, I want to go there. I'm reading here, you face numerous life-threatening events, including repeated failure of critical life support systems, a near collision between the space station and an incoming resupply spacecraft, and computer failures that sit the space station tumbling uncontrollably through space. As if these problems weren't enough, you narrowly survived a raging out-of-control fire that was later described as the most severe fire ever aboard an orbiting spacecraft. That's high stress. And each of those things could have taken you out, not just the space station, could have taken you out. You just said something. We couldn't get rid of the CO2 in the air. You're going to die soon if you're not able to yeah, do that. Yeah, you're hyperventilating, getting lightheaded. You know, when an oxygen generator would break down in Vasily, my crewmate would be working on it. You know, I'd float by him throughout the day, pat him on the back, and I'd say, you're a good man. You're smart. I know you can fix that thing. Keep up the good work. You know, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to stress Earth. him out, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you think you have pressure on Earth, but, you know, step back and look at the bigger picture now and then. You know, it's not going to kill you 99% right. of the time. So, Jerry, did you ever call your wife and kids? And Yeah, no, we had broken communication systems. So it was, in theory, we were going to have a downlink once a week. Uh, but in actuality, we were talking through static. Uh, the Russians had really financial limitations. And uh, at that time, they were hurting their satellite. They had to use it for military applications. So they cut that out of our communication loop. And we were reduced to a ground antenna over Moscow. Every 90 minutes, we'd be lucky to talk through the static. So we were cut off, isolated, and it was up to us and our training. And the competence of the people up there is the bottom line. And the way you address that and the way you work through those problems is, again, you feel this sense that it's a privilege to be up here. Number two, what I'm doing up here is important. The science objectives, trying to keep the space station alive, doing spacewalks, you know, putting out the fire so that you could accomplish those goals. But the bottom line is it probably gets down to myself, Vasily, and Sasha. I am not going to let them down. They're not going to let me down. And it reminds me of the old World War II guys in a foxhole together. You know, at some point, you're not fighting for your country or anything else. You're fighting for the guy next to you. So in life and death situations, that's what it got down to. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Jerry Lininger in just a moment. Welcome to the very last Marketing Mythbusters of 2017 with our Marketing Mythbuster in her Wonder Woman pose, Kula Callahan. Hi, Kula. Hey, Don. What is the final marketing myth of 2017? Here's the final myth. Mm -hmm. Your emails are too long. <gasps> But of course they're too long. You can't send long emails. Yes, you can. Nobody wants to pour a glass of whiskey and sit and read an email <laughs> by a fire. <laughs> All right. Here's some of the best advice I've ever gotten. It's not that your emails are too long. There's no such thing as an email that's too long. Right. Your emails are too boring. 
Ooh, that hurts. So there's no such thing <laughs> as a long email. There's just an email that's uninteresting. So if it's interesting, you can keep going. Absolutely. All right. Yes. Well, help us. How do you make it interesting? All right. Here's how you make it interesting. First, focus on the beginning of the email. If you don't start with a hook, meaning if you don't start mm. with a problem or a pain point that yep. your customers are dealing with, people aren't going to continue reading. Just like a story. Absolutely. It starts with a person who's got a problem. Right. And your first line of that email needs to say, a lot of people hate the fact they can't grow grass in the heat of a Nashville summer. Something right. like that, right? Yep. And then it, it makes people go, well, how are you going to solve that problem? That's a real problem. And they keep reading. Right, because it opens a story loop and it makes them think, mm. is this email going to close that loop and give me what I need? Yeah, now you're talking. Early in the email, you have to open a story loop that you promise to close either with the buying of a product or somehow later in the email. Correct. And it keeps people going. Yes. Yeah, because I get emails sometimes and, you know, it's like, my uncle Jake once told me, but in, in two sentences <laughs> in, I'm like, ah, I'm quitting. Probably not going to read the whole thing. Yeah, not right. going to read the whole thing. So it can be as long as you want. It just has to be interesting. Here's the thing. Just start with the problem. It doesn't, I mean, it matters that it's one of the problems your customer is dealing with, yeah. but don't get bogged down on which problem you choose because if you open with a hook, they're going to follow you into it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Any other tips on making it interesting? Yes. Use active language. Yes. So what I mean by That's that... That's true in literature. It's true right. in period and writing. Right. So you actually did this earlier today. You said when you go up to a puppy and try to play with it, you don't just stand there and look at the puppy, <laughs> right? Yeah, you, you start grabbing its ears. Right. And, you start to play with it. You're active with the puppy and yeah. it wants to play with you more, right? So use I'm active language. I'm living this language. now with our puppy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so use active language. Uh, pick up your phone and call us today or take out your cell phone and text this number. Or I've, I've read emails that say things like, Go over to your lazy boy chair and pull your phone out from behind that cushion and give me a call. But go over, pick up, those Jump kinds of things. Jump on this offer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Really active. You know, I, I remember reading a piece of advice in a writing book about writing well. It said, use active language, like make your characters move. And I was reading Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes, won a mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize for that book. And uh, I thought, well, no way. This is a reflective memoir. Right. Not all great writing is active. I took a red pen, opened the book just randomly, and I thought, I'm going to circle every active thing happening in this paragraph. I practically circled the entire paragraph. Wow. He was active and moving right. the whole time. And it's a memoir where he's reflecting on his life. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's true. Enjoyable literature involves people doing things right. and being active. Yeah. So get your customers to move. That was a great tip. I mean, first start with a problem and then make that just think... Are people sweating in this email? Are the, are the people who are doing the things in the email sweating? We got to get them working out. You're a yoga instructor. You got to get them moving. Yeah. Down dog. <laughs> I love it. I think that might be one of the best tips of the year. Everybody just improve their writing. Save the best for last. Right there. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to use this for Christmas cards. This active language, I'm going to start with a problem. I know how much you hate Christmas, Betsy. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's a great marketing myth. Listen, if you want more tips, strategies, if you need help in your marketing, if you don't think your website's working, your emails aren't getting open, and when people open them, they're not buying anything, you need a marketing plan. And I want you to come to a StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. You register for the workshop, you join us here in Nashville, and in 48 hours, in only two days, you leave with a clear message and a marketing plan that you can execute and stop wasting money. Don't waste a dime on marketing in 2018. Clarify your message and leave with a plan. Go to storybrand.com and register right now. We have about 40,000 business leaders listening to this podcast. They're all high-impact folks, and they're all trying to get a lot of stuff done. Nothing on the level of what you have done. But I think we have something to learn from you if we want to accomplish some of our important goals, growing our companies, making sure everybody has health insurance and is getting paid and all that kind of stuff. You talk about some characteristics that got you through. And some of those characteristics are outside of you. They're external in terms of who you choose to be up there with and what kind of wiring those people have to have. And you talked about the importance of competence. And the system, of course, selects out people who aren't competent. Why is it so important that we are incredibly competent at what people are trusting us to do? We talk about teamwork a lot of times down there on the planet. You know, I go to a lot of business meetings, actually. And first of all, I just have to say to all those business leaders listening, you know, I have high respect for you. I admire what you're doing. You're the ones that make space programs, for example, possible. The prosperity of the United States makes what I was able to do possible. And so I have all the respect in the world for you. I guess one thing I urge everyone, you talk about great teams and you know how you put these people together, but I think we ignore the foundation of any good team. 
And that foundation is individual competence. You know, individual competence. You have to know your stuff. You have to burn the midnight oil. And I'll tell you, in a space station with three people with failing life support systems, if you're the weak link in the chain, you find out very quickly. And you don't want to be that weak link in the chain. And when you're up there in that situation, five months cut off from mankind, you better know your stuff. You better have the life experiences that prepare you for whatever might come your way, you know, raging fires or, you know, broken down pumps or whatever it is, you better draw upon it. And, you know, we'd huddle, the three of us would huddle together and say, you know, this pump is broken. Uh, anyone know how to fix a pump? And I said, well, you know, I took part lawnmower engines in a shop class and you know, eighth grade, <laughs> you know, I can wield the wrench. Give me the wrench. I'll work at it. Well, that gets into something else you talk about. You talk about the importance of past experience. Absolutely. Doing a lot of things and learning as much as you can. You just said you went flying. Good for you. You know, if you ever parachuted, you should do it. If you, you know, not just these physical things, but, you know, mental things, explore new things. Life is fantastic. The carefree existence we have here on earth, you know, every second of the day is kind of precious and, you know, do something with it. You've already talked about your teammates and you obviously think of them with great affection, the importance of teamwork. And when you're talking to these executives in these meetings and you're telling them how important it is to be competent at what you do, what do you do with a team that is, you know, showing symptoms of dysfunction? There's some egos in the room. They're not working together. What's your advice to those teams? I think the vision is the key thing. You got to get people excited about what your vision is. You know, in our case, you know, exploring space, moving mankind forward, that's a pretty good vision that everybody can, um, you know, give 100% for. But, you know, you got to manage the people. You got to motivate them. You got to keep them going. And I'll tell you, I had to talk to myself quite a bit up in space to say, get going, Jerry. You got a lot of work to do. And, you know, you just have to, I don't know, somehow draw deep and get the job done. You know, you got to get the job done. You can't give up. There's things that are more important than us and our egos and who's going to get the credit and those kinds of things. And if you, I think if you have a leader who can cast a vision and explain why it matters beyond just the people in the room, I think it's an incredible motivator to bring people together. And obviously encouragement, too, yeah. the pat on the back. And yeah. I'll tell you one thing I learned up there, which was surprising, probably the biggest surprise was that, you know, I was sort of craving some outside source to tell me I'm doing a good job. And it sounds crazy people. Hey, you're an astronaut. You know, you have that own sense of accomplishment. You're doing complicated stuff up there. But I'll tell you what really helped through that broken communication that we had. If I got just any message from the earth that said, man, the uh, researcher there in the Czech Republic is really pleased with the results of that experiment you did. He said you did a fantastic job. You know, you crave that. And what did that take? Not a whole lot for them to pass that message up to me. Uh, but that gets me going the next day to do a good job for the next guy. So just as words of encouragement do matter to everyone. I mean, that's practical. We can all actually, you know, pause the podcast right now and sit down with a thank you letter or some note of encouragement. Jerry, I don't want to leave you in space. We got to get you down. You're up there and they're coming to pick you up. Will you walk me through your final day, five months, longest anybody's ever been in space. Is that right? At that time. Yeah. Records keep getting broken, time. obviously. But at that time it was for an American man. So the space shuttle's coming up and I'll tell you, United States flag on, on that wing coming to pick me up. You know, what a fantastic sight. Can I back up a little bit? Now I know the International Space Station is bigger. How much room do you have to move around in the Russian space station? You said it was sizable, not as big as the International Space Station. Is it a 3,000 square foot house? That's is it a kind of like six school buses hooked together? The problem was four or five of those six were just jammed with discarded gear. So the Russians were able to bring things up little by little over those years, but they did not have the capacity to bring things back down. And so it kind of turned into, um, you know, some modules were just filled with garbage, you know, leftover equipment, which they were always sort of reluctant to bring back to earth because you might need a bolt or a nut and you could steal it off some piece of equipment up there. And so, you had your own junkyard. Yeah. So the one thing you do have, though, is volume. And so, you know, I became three-dimensional. After about a month in space, I did not see floors, walls, and ceiling. I just saw volume. So if you picture yourself in your office right now, you know, you could have 
20 people here because someone can be up on the ceiling. Someone could be, you know, hanging on the wall next to you. And so I didn't have that claustrophobic feeling that you might imagine you would have up in a closed confines like that. Now, in a Soyuz capsule, we did a fly around there. You've got your knees up into your chest. The guy's shoulder to shoulder, three of us jammed into a can. And the control panel is probably 12 inches in front of your face. You know, the old Gemini flights, that's about the size of those spacecraft. That is a tough flight. 14 days with your knees up into your chin with one other human being. Uh, that's a tough challenge. When was this? This, this is what... would be the Gemini days I'm talking about. Those guys that did oh, it. Oh, gotcha. Then. Now, I did fly around in the Soyuz capsule. We had a problem. We had to go into the Soyuz capsule, the Russian spacecraft, disconnect, fly around, examine some damage that we had, and then redock at a different port. And so I was able to have that experience of being inside a, the old-fashioned spacecraft from like we had in Gemini. So that was quite an experience. That thing was connected to the space station or you were using? Yeah, it was connected. So we always kept one Russian spacecraft up there and that's our escape vehicle. So for example, during the raging gotcha. fire, we had about 14 minutes of blowtorch likes flames, you know, total blackout from the smoke. Your instinct is to get the heck out of here. And that was our pathway out is to get over to that Soyuz capsule and evacuate. Unfortunately, the flame was between us and that Soyuz capsule. And so that uh, option was cut off and, you know, we were stuck fighting the fire and there's no way you could get out of it. But yes, we had an escape vehicle at all times and that was the Soyuz capsule. And we still have the same on the International Space Station today. We always have a capsule up there. Should you need to evacuate, there is a way out, sort of your lifeboat. <laughs> All right. I mean, I could go on about this fire. I hate to even pass it up. You just opened a story loop that I want to keep moving, though. The shuttle's coming up. The American flag's on it. It's going to pick you up. I mean, did you wake up that morning or that day or whatever and think today's the day and you're counting down the hours, or were you just too busy finishing up some experiments? or What's going through your head knowing you're going home? I was busy finishing up, but I realized, Don, that if I let down my guard and if they got delayed or anything happened, I'd drop off the cliff because I was working as hard as I could, trying to keep everything together as best I could so that I could work as efficiently and competently right up to the last minute. So I did not let my guard down until that thing docked. We equalized the pressures between the vehicles. I opened up the hatch, grabbed my American uh crewmates, you know, gave him a big bear hug. And then I moved my custom-made seat liner out of the Soyuz spacecraft I just spoke about. I moved that out, put in my replacement seat liner. And then I knew if there was any problem from that moment forward, I would be on the shuttle. I would not be on the mere Russian space station any longer. And that's when I finally allowed my guard to come down. And you don't give up. It's like a sports competition. You don't, you know, sit back on the lead you have. You keep pressing right to the final moment. There's a lesson right there for us. You just keep pressing. So when I got back on shuttle, that was a great moment, eating shrimp cocktail, dehydrated, but not bad, <laughs> better than Russian forced every day, you know, so it was a wonderful moment. And then, of course, on the shuttle, we do fantastic stuff. We did about five days of experiments. You mean still docked to the space station or you guys took off? After we departed. So we now detached from the space station. And then we fly independently. And then you get a call from these smart people, Mission Control Houston, finally, that say, put this in your computer, 46.621 seconds. And you put it in, you're over the Indian Ocean, you're flying inverted backwards and upside down, if you will. And then you fire the engines at precisely the right moment for precisely the right amount of time. You decelerate, steer yourself back over, get the tiles lined up. 20 minutes later, start slamming into the atmosphere fireball all around you, you know, 45 minutes of turbulence like you've never felt before as you come through the atmosphere. And the amazing thing is, is that the smart people down on earth, the people in mission control figure out when you have to fire that engine, where you have to fire the engine for a precise amount of time so that you now glide down and you are a glider at this point. You now have to glide down and hit not only planet earth and not only the peninsula of Florida, but you've got to hit the approach end of the Kennedy Space Center on altitude of precisely 220 knots. And you mentioned earlier, it's hard to find the runway. Well, that's <laughs> that's really tough finding the runway. That's the ultimate. That's not remote control, though. One of you guys is actually flying the aircraft at that point. 
At the end, yes. So a lot of automatic control on the shuttle, but then you're the oversight of that. If something doesn't look right, you take over manually. But the landing of the shuttle is manual. So you yank it around 180 degree turn, last two sonic booms left behind. You dive down at the earth about eight times as steeply as you would in a commercial airliner. You're very heavy and you're gliding. And so you need the energy right to the last second. Charlie pulls back. Eileen Collins, she'd be the first female shuttle commander later. She's the co-pilot. She lets the landing gear down, touchdown, nose gear down, roll out, let out the drag chute, parachute unfurls behind us, deceleration, wheel stop. And at that moment is when you really let down your guard and you say, you know, we made it We're home. back home. I got to back up, though. We're not there yet. You must weigh 2,000 pounds at this point. <laughs> at what point did you start feeling the gravity and realizing – Oh my gosh, I think I ate too much pizza up there. Yeah, yeah. Off the coast of California, you're pulling about two and a half Gs. That's the most you pull. But after floating for five months, you feel very, very heavy. Dropping my ink pen, you know, expecting it to float as it has for five months and starting to fall down. But getting back on earth there, when they open that side hatch and the fresh air comes gushing in, you know, it's a glorious moment. And you haven't smelled that in forever. Yeah, it just tastes good. And here's really the bottom line and probably the most important message to all of your listeners is this, never take things for granted. Realize how good we have it down here on planet earth. You know, we are blessed with a carefree life, carefree existence, air is all around you. You don't have to make the oxygen. You don't have to worry about it rushing out and suffocating you in a rapid decompression. You know, I took a deep breath of air and I, you know, just count my blessings, man. I try to do that every day when I wake up in the morning. And if you're having a bad day, just take a deep breath and say, man, how good we have it. What a carefree life. What a great existence, no matter what your challenge, no matter how bad business seems to be going right now, just realize how good we have it. You think the world would be a different place if every major world leader, at least every nuclear power or wannabe nuclear power had to send their, uh, prime minister or their president to uh, space for five months and come back, you think they would see the world differently and be able to compromise a little more? We'd be totally different. All of our conflicts would go away. We'd understand we're all in it together. I don't even think you need five months. If I could snap my fingers and get mankind up there for about 15 minutes, I think we'd all come back very, very changed. We'd appreciate our planet, appreciate the incredible buffering that the earth does for us and we'd abuse it a little bit less be a little more gentle with it and i think the boundaries the borders the conflicts would just disappear just as they did with myself a russian guy that used to be a mig fighter pilot you know myself an old naval officer and a military engineer you know those differences just go away when you get those common purpose common goal so yeah, just a few seconds of all of us in space, uh, we'd realize we're all in it together. You know, one big planet down here, and uh, I think a lot of the conflicts would just disappear. Jerry, it's a beautiful interview. I'm so grateful for the conversation. It's been great talking to you. I enjoy all your podcasts, and I'm looking forward to listening to some in the future. So thank you. It was an honor to be with you. Ready to go to space? I'm ready to set bigger goals, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> would you go to space if you could? No, I actually don't think I would. I would go on a space shuttle mission, you know, and come back in like three days. I would do I that. You do that? No. You wouldn't I, do that? No, I don't think so, truthfully. Was it the taking off and the rattling around and your head uh, bouncing against the... Like you, it's the fact that you mentioned being in space. <laughs> I think, like, I'm not good with heights. Like I'm so afraid of heights. That's I can't a, that's be a five, height six. Thing with, you, don't like, even, you don't even process it though. You'd say that. You do you feel like that way on an airplane? Sometimes, You're not afraid of heights yeah, when you're on an airplane? I kind of, yeah, I like sit we're a the, long way I, down. I sit in the middle aisle so I don't look out the window. <laughs> I had no and idea. I, and you know I'm on the flights all the time. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I'm so afraid to be tall. I don't want to be <laughs> like heights. I don't want to be five, six. Like that's just like. I do not like heights, and the older I get, the worse it gets. Mm. Once again, the most inspired. Uh... I know I'm so inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't want to. Don't want to go to space. Um, I have a five. Would you go floor. deep, deep into the ocean in like a submarine? No, that's even more. But I do love scuba diving. I do love scuba diving, but for some reason, I feel like I'm more in control. I don't know. I'm weird in that space. But um, no, I would not go into submarine. I would not go into space. Would you go back in time? No. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I have no, I have no desire. I'm actually a very boring person. This is the thing is people come up to me a lot after like listening on the podcast and they're like, ah, and I'm like, no, I'm just like, kind of like sitting at home and watching White Christmas. Like that's really my idea of a glorious evening. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's not, actually. That's, that's the part about it is it's not. Is you are much more adventurous than I am in those things. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know about that. I would say, yeah. Although we did take our motorcycles out the other night, you and I, mm. and went for a ride. We and actually, by motorcycle, yeah. you rode a motorcycle. The story is I was on a motorcycle, you were on a moped that topped out. <laughs> at, at, at about 15 miles an hour. <laughs> you're welcome very much. You were like, uh, do I need a helmet? And I'm like, well, you could actually use a bike helmet because technically the state actually does consider it a bicycle. <laughs> it's that So I slow. did. I wore a bike helmet. <laughs> anyway. That's my adventure right there. Well, there you go. But I would say you live a fulfilling life. I live a very fulfilling and life. And nobody has to have these kinds of adventures. And if you're sitting at home going, I'll never be an astronaut. And so I can never have a fulfilling life. You're wrong. You can. Some people would think you're wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't be one of them, but you. some people would say that's okay. Well, speaking of a great year coming, yes, we have a great year leaving. We do. We are leaving behind a great year. It's been an amazing This year. has been an excellent year for the podcast. Yeah. We've had, I mean, our best guests ever. Yeah. You and our chemistry is just off the, <laughs> it's, it's just unbelievable. We are clicking on all cylinders. And next week's episode is going to be the best of 2017. Yes. Always a favorite for our podcast listeners. Yep. If you missed any podcast, you're going to get the best clips, the best bits of the interviews. And it's a great way, actually, to introduce other people to the podcast. If you missed anything this year, just listen to yeah. this one. Yeah. And you will catch up. So be looking out for that. Yeah. JJ, 2018 is going to be great. I'm actually we're really actually, excited. You know, we're planning some some slight changes to the podcast, some slight improvements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say a word. You don't know this yet. Oh, I I'm don't? I'm going to say a word. Really? But we might be including correspondence really mm-hmm. i am not aware of this but that makes me really excited perhaps people out in the world doing interviews with other people out in the world Ooh la la! <laughs> it's gonna be crazy oh, that's awesome it's gonna be nuts <laughs> so you want to keep listening for yeah. all of 2018 Ooh. jj one of the most exciting things for me really for story brand this year was we finally released building yes. story brand the book so fun and if you're one of the few who haven't picked it up yet go to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com grab building a story brand it has the entire story brand framework which will teach you to communicate clearly clear up all your marketing and of course it'll grow your company if you haven't bought the book yet, buy it. Forward your receipt to bonus at storybrand.com. If you forward your receipt to bonus at storybrand.com, I'll send you a video called How to Be a Communication Ninja. So that's exciting. And thanks yeah. to everybody who's already bought it. Yeah. A huge word of gratitude to you. Thank you for buying the book. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to stay home and watch White Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>